0: Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading.
1: Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes.
0: Hello, welcome back to the Appendix and Book Club podcast. And with me is that radically unempathetic Andy, Jeff Goad.
1: I don't know, if I walked into a room and saw that your your hide had been turned into a chair, that would upset
0: me. <laughs> you would pass the Voight test. <laughs> <laughs> and this week, we're very honored to have with us a special guest. We're not sure if he's an Android or not, Yochai Gal, the designer of Cairn. He blogs on New School Revolution, and he also is a podcaster for the podcast Between Two Cairns. Hello. Hi.
2: Uh, first off, if I were an Android, I wouldn't know that I was an Android most, th- like at least, you know, based on the... <laughs> based on the literature. Most of them don't even know that they're androids, right? So, you know, how would I know?
0: Well, so. except for the opera singer. She's very, she's very well. She was very aware. Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, six of them were aware.
0: Yeah.
1: Also, hearing Hoi talk about Cairn and Between Two Cairns, it was making me think about how maybe I should write an RPG called Karen and then have a podcast about it <laughs> called Between Two Karens.
2: <laughs> uh, that joke has unfortunately been made more than once in my <laughs> to me on the internet. I'm Someone sure, even I'm like sure. did a mock up. Someone did a mock up using the font that I used, <laughs> um, like some Gothic, Deutsch gothica uh, but the word Karen. And then they took that picture of a Karen, you know, that you always see with the whoosh hair, and made it black and white.
1: Yeah, it's it's it's, it's been done. That's all. <laughs> That's hilarious. Okay, okay. I'm glad I'm not alone in thinking that. <laughs>
0: so you uh tell us a little bit about yourself uh first with maybe your interest in speculative fiction and how you got into it
2: yeah so i began reading what i used to call fantasy and science fiction when i was um, 10 or 11 probably Uh, the biggest influence to me was my uncle who was a huge nerd he actually taught uh uh, science fiction English English at a public school in uh, Reseda, California, for twenty years, and uh, it was a huge literary influence. He gave me, you know, Lord of the Rings and that kind of stuff, but also some weird stuff got me into like uh, stuff I think I never would have come across otherwise because you know I didn't have the internet. And uh, yeah, I think for a while I only read science fiction. Actually, like I was really sort of a snobby about non sci fi. Uh, I read. I think I read all Philip K. Dick, for instance, before I was 20, because I just tried to find it. And I would read, you know, um, the more sci-fi elements of like, authors like Kurt Vonnegut, you know, I would always gravitate towards Sirens of Titan as opposed to, you know, uh, Mother Night*. You know, I was sort of went towards the sci-fi elements. And then at some point in my late 20s, I had this sort of break where I started to appreciate speculative fiction that wasn't tied as much towards technology and, and, and how the universe operates around it. And I really got into uh, more pulpy traditional fantasy, uh, you know, Vanceian and style fantasy de- dying earth. Style. I was really into Jack Vance and Sprout the comp and all those folks for uh, quite a while. Um, I actually still think, <laughs> I actually think my favorite of that entire sort of oeuvre, oeuvre, oeuvre I don't know how you say that. Um, is the uh, Farfetched and Graouser still still mm-hmm. up there for me, and a little bit of Conan too, but um at some point that turned more into sort of the roots of that sorts of fantasy, and I got really into folk tales, which is in my folktale period is still ongoing for the last sure. decade or so. I have become um just absolutely obsessed with folk tales. and um for a while, it was only Jewish folk tales. Very, very into Jewish folktales. And then it sort of expanded into um, Asian, European, African, um, uh, indigenous groups. Like, I, I've still, that's kind of the majority of what I read. When I'm not reading a novel or something, mm-hmm. I'll be reading just b- books of folktales. Right.
0: Now, you had mentioned when you're the sort of science fiction you're reading, and I think it's probably no secret to anyone who sort of follows you on social media that you are a leftist, but the so- science fiction that you were looking at is specifically. It may be talking about the future of technology, but it's not technocratic. It's not the Robert Heinlein, the Joseph Campbell, that kind of stuff. Like did that have any influence on your current political? Huh, social yeah, view? yeah.
2: Oh cer- certainly. Yeah. I, well, although I I didn't read leftist writers necessarily. For instance, I would still read you know, Hyperion is written by Dan Simmons and he's a... Quite right-wing, yeah. <laughs> virulent right-winger, anti-Muslim. Yeah. Uh, you know, Um, his r- more recent stuff I can't read for that reason. But Hyperion is still one of my all-time favorite novels. And and I mean, I, I would say it goes beyond being just purely scientific, but there are definitely... There's <laughs> huge sci-fi elements in it. Uh On the flip side, my all-time favorite novel is The Dispossessed by Ursula K. Le Guin. And, um, you know, I've read most of what she's written and she's, to me... I think if there's any one human who I would aspire to be, it would be her, you know, Mm -hmm. I think on every, every single level. Um, I think she is, you know, God tier as they say. Uh, So yes, it's to some extent, I think I was taught. uh, I mean, my parents are communists, so it's not that weird, but I think I was taught more radical ways of thinking, um, even against what I would, you know, I, as a person of privilege, I don't, Know where that privilege is a lot of the time, and having voices like Ursula K. Le Guin, I think, really shook me and made me sort of see myself from the outside a little bit more. So, to to, to that extent, yes, radical authors and authors who are willing to dream of a better human experience uh, were highly influential towards my more hard left politics that I espouse today and have always espoused. But I I I I, I would owe it more towards those who taught me empathy. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's what it comes down to, is, well, is that'll be, learning.
0: Uh, that'll be a big theme, because this week is... Uh, long, it's a, it is <laughs> it is
2: it is the critical uh, function of this book, I think. Right. It's yeah, which is, this week empathy. will be
0: uh, uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. But before we go and talk about that, let's talk a little bit about your also your uh, history with gaming. So you've talked about getting more into the pulp, and that's obviously the science fiction you were talking about is not particularly gameable, or at least has not been in the past. Maybe people have figured out a way to do that, but as you said, you got into more pulp. And is that the same time you got into gaming or were you into gaming before that?
2: I've always been into gaming. I started in the 90s with Palladium Fantasy 2nd Edition, uh, which, you know, was Palladium Fantasy. That's but where you started? It, it's pretty. That was my, that's what That's what I started pl- with RPGs. Yeah. Fascinating. Palladium <laughs> Palladium I don't think I've ever heard that, any- that
0: before. I've never heard of anyone starting with that. You. Uh, well, I'll,
2: I'll tell you it was completely random my mother as she was she was a social worker and uh the place that she worked had an attached it wasn't a bookstore it was stacks of books that you could trade for other books and i was just going through there i used to do this thing where i would i would buy books off based on the cover or in, go to the library and get books based on the cover i would oh, yeah. read obsessively I, mean, I would try you know a novel a day i was that kind of kid and when um I was I was hanging outside of her work one day and I I saw this ridiculous cover of this you know man on a winged horse with a sword fighting a dragon and it just I don't know I was fascinated by it. I'd never heard of role playing games uh, and so that was the first RPG experience I'd ever had um, and then like many others I took a long break after that and till um, just after fifth edition had come out and uh, moved from there to more story games and then sort of swung back towards old school role-playing, uh, which is where I have sort of found myself.
1: And speaking of that, I would just love to say that I am a huge fan of your game Karen. I think Karen is a fantastic rule set. Um, and I'm even a little biased against it already because I don't usually, li- I don't I don't like roll under systems. I love OSR games, but mm. roll under systems, I'm just not a mm. fan of. Um, but I think Cairn Understood. is a really fantastic roll under system.
2: I mean, it's based off Into the Odd, which has a really great application of the roll under mechanic, especially when you're moved, you know, to hit rolls. Uh, uh, I also love the Black Hack, which uses roll under and lots um, of amazing uh, games. (laughs) Right. No, as a person who struggles with math, it was really helpful for me. And I know people say, oh, well, it's not much math, but like even remembering two numbers in my head becomes you know,
1: a strenuous activity at a time. So that was really what led me to liking it. I agree with you. I don't, I don't like modifiers either. I'm just very emotionally attached to the 20 being a really good thing. You want to get really, it still matters. I mean, having 18
2: strength, the number is still better. It's still a higher number equals better. It's just how it works out. It's different. I understand you're you're a traditionalist. That's okay. In that sense. Yeah.
1: But but I also like simplicity. So those two things can also really be at odds sure. because right. how do you have simplicity with six right. stats that are generated on a scale of a three to eight a three to an eighteen, and you want to roll a d twenty, mm-hmm. and you want to go high, but you also don't want to use modifiers? It's a really challenging line right. to walk with that kind of a with, right. with design. Agreed. But right. what I think is really cool about Karen specifically is that it's classless. And that what you do is determined by what you have, which I think is a really interesting take, which I haven't really seen done elsewhere.
2: Right. Well, that's yeah, and that was from Nave. So I have I have three games that I absolutely love. One is Maze Rats by Ben Milton, which mm. is um, has an almost Traveler style mechanic for rolling dice. You have to do, you know get get either seven or nine depending if you have advantage um, with two d six. And uh, Cairn is based off of Ben Milton's other game, Knave, where, which it borrows for its inventory and character generation. And finally into the odd for the majority of the mechanics. Uh, I added some of my own sort of stuff to make magic work because into the odd doesn't have magic, but the fundamental concept is you're not limited by what class archetype you have. If you want to start shooting bows and arrows, you can go and do that. If you want to switch off to using spells, you can go and do that. And to me, it's not so much that there's like a freedom to it. It's more that not having prescribed classes allows the kinds of um, games I like to play to feel more, uh, I don't know, more like there's a baked in character uh, agency. Like I feel like it, players can, find themselves doing what they think they would do in that situation not based off what's on their character sheet with the exception of inventory so to make that less confusing i feel like when i play games that are classless and have inventory based mechanics that they give a greater sense of agency to the players who are no longer bound by well i'm as a ranger i would only do this like no what the hell is a ranger you are this weird amalgam of person who does what they think they should do in that situation it's not really role play it's more just sort of a emergent narrative that i like and i mean this is all whatever intellectual snobbery i think but okay
0: so uh i definitely want to talk to more about this but let's go to that back half of the show and talk about it so before we talk about this week's book can you recommend one or two uh things that you think are a great inspiration for gaming uh whether it's a book or other uh, piece of media
2: i can't it's hard to drill down because i could be very obvious and say well the tower of the elephant is really great And for you know i there's stuff that's pretty obvious but the one that i think is not talked about nearly enough is uh, a book called the etched city by kj bishop who is an australian writer she has written a number of sort of interesting what you'd call like new weird uh fiction books her short story collection is actually uh, she has a separate short story collection that the name escapes me but it's <laughs> it's quite it's quite good it's very good it's a little dark but the etched city is a standalone novel it is i guess you'd call it weird west but it's so much more than that um i wrote an, a sort of a a setting called the clay shelf for electric bastion land that was heavily inspired by the etched city and um yeah i'm not sure the way I would tie it into genre is I really like science fantasy as a genre. So like faults of Varn is an example of an RPG that I really love that setting or the electrum archive is another one. Um, I love science fantasy. So you have this, like, you know, it's not Warhammer. That's something different. It's more um, look, it's fantasy, but there's these ancient tech relics littered across the landscape. And, you know, it's sort of wild West star Wars, with more acute magic, but, um, you know, interesting tech that is, doesn't get too complicated. I, I like that kind of perfect mix. And I think the etch city does that in a way that is both, um, really imaginative. I mean, there's, there's concepts, like there's one great situation where people, instead of getting lawyers, they hire, um, duelists to duel on their behalf. And there's like professional duelists who all know each other and the mechanics behind how that work is just super interesting. Uh, uh, there's these um, it's like a tropical city. So there's a lot of um, rain and the way rain interacts with the society. There is quite interesting, it's reminiscent to the, the series, the Re- the rainy city. If you're familiar, it's a, um, it's a RPG setting. So yeah, the, the edge city by KJ Bishop is, it's also just so well-written and I really wish you would write more. Oh, I thought of one more I want to recommend. I, I I mentioned to you both earlier that I had a second book. I had forgotten what it was, but I just remembered what it was. Um, so if, if I can move on from that, yeah. I, I will tell you what the second book is. Go ahead. Okay. It's called um, the cosmic antipodes uh, is the series. There's two written so far out of three. The first is, um, oh, it's by uh, Rafael Ordóñez, Who's a, a, a a writer based out of Texas and it, the first book is called, um, Oh shoot. I always forget. It's, uh, something grasshopper. Damn it. I should have written it down, but the series is called the cosmic antipodes. And, uh, it is basically as if someone was writing a Vancey novel today. That's what it's like. So it uses like, or, or Wolf's, I, you know what? It's closer to Gene Wolf than it is Jack Vance in terms of language. Um, and it is, the there's two books so far i have no idea when a third book is going to come out it's been years but it is um very reminiscent of a you know new book book of the new sun or um uh what's the jack vance one that has a it's sort of sci-fi i've already forgotten the name uh, anyways it's Lioness. is Lioness. anyways Linus, um, yeah, yeah. Linus, thank you. i yeah. i I've absolutely love these books and no one has heard of them. And I always forget the name of the first book. All right. It's Sorry. something grasshopper. Anyhow. Yeah. That's my second one.
0: R- Raphael during the cosmic antipodes yeah. series. Okay. We'll yeah. Yeah. That Yo, that,
2: out. that will, yeah, that should tell you, I think uh, enough. <laughs> okay. um, Dragonfly. That's Dragon what it's Fly. called. Dragonfly, a tale, a tale of the counter earth at the cosmic antipodes. <laughs> there <you go>. <laughs> just right. Just link it. If one person buys that book, by the way, The cover of both of his books, he painted himself, and it tells you something about the books. So there you go. Yes, those are the two. All
0: right, we'll keep an eye out for those. Put them in a poll sometime. Uh, So this week we're reading uh, Philip K. Dick's "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep?" Uh, Do you have a high Gaxian word for the week? I I
2: I thought about this. I thought about this when I was reading it. Like, what is something that is that would qualify? You know, and. I could not find a single word in the book that I thought would qualify. <laughs> no, there was not I'm any sorry. unusual. Uh,
0: I'm I have sorry. one. I have one. Uh, okay. I think it's Do the it. obvious one. It's not even uh, it's a fiction one he made up. It's Kipple. Uh, yes, yes. Kip, kippel as defined in the book, is, this is um this is J.R. Isidore saying this, this is Kipple is useless objects like junk mail or match folders that you use after the last ma- after you use the last match or gum wrappers or yesterday's homepage. Homeopape When nobody's around, kipple reproduces itself. For instance, if you go to bed leaving any kipple around your apartment, when you wake up the next morning, there's twice as much of it. It always gets more and more. And it's basically the principle of entropy uh, as a physical object. So there you go, kipple. All right, so uh, we're in the library now. Um, Philip K. Dix, do you enjoy stream of electric sheep? Uh, Any first thoughts? Jeff, you have a first thought?
1: Yeah, I loved it. In the patron book club, there were there were nine of us there in total. And I was one of two who hadn't read this before. And I was one of two who hadn't read any Philip K. Dick at all before. So what What? I know, I know. I, I'm 42. What? I've I've been hearing for 30 years that I need to read Philip K. Dick. And I've spent 30 years going, okay, cool. I'll, I'll get around to it and not getting around to it. So oh my now goodness. I'm finally reading one and I thought it was fantastic. Um, easily, this book is in my top 10 of the books that we've covered for this. I, I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was really smart. I think there's a lot of... Um, of sophistication in not only the prose but also in the, the the humanity that he's bringing to this 1968 science fiction flying cars and robots story. Um, I was very moved by it and very impressed by it.
0: think now Yochai, you said you'd read a ton of Philip K. Dick. I have. Read I've read this, everything. Right. Everything I, is. This reading. is the only one I've read of his, and I read it oh my the God. first time when I was in high school, right after seeing the movie yes. and not getting it. And now oh. I can get it. <laughs> well, that didn't. They wouldn't help you get. Okay. Oh, you mean yeah. that?
2: You mean not getting the? Got it. Okay.
0: Yeah, not getting the book. Wow. Yeah, the movie was got it, got you know it. fine. But in fact, actually, I have to say that I did not like Blade Runner the first time I saw it in the theater, and it was only well, like which two version later. have you
2: seen? There's I've eight, seen eight versions all of them now, but uh, but when I saw no, the no, no, I mean, oh, okay, yeah, got it, got it. Okay. Um,
0: but now I like the theatrical version. I I actually even like the. Uh, begrudging voiceover from, from my Harrison Ford because <laughs> yeah, I think it makes him even yeah. more replicant-like. Um, it,
2: it, yeah, it really reminds me of the edit they did of Dune, where they put the story in the beginning. You know, where they have yeah. the Bene Gesserit woman talking about right, the right.
0: intro. It's just oh, I can't. But okay. <laughs> um, but it's interesting because I think the discussion we had um, in the book club, and and Jeff and Yochai, maybe you can both mention this, is that. The film is such um, such a touchstone, cultural touchstone. I mean, almost like 40 years worth of Japanese anime and manga has been influenced. Our entire conception of cyberpunk has been influenced. But somehow we're able to read, people mentioned that they were able to read the book because it was so different from the movie, even though there were a lot of touch, uh, touchstones, that you didn't feel the weight of the movie pressing down on the book the way that, for example, the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings might... Pressed down on you if you were reading Lord of the Rings for the first time, um, so I was wondering if either one of you wanted to speak to that.
2: I mean, they're different; they're very different
1: from one another. I agree. I agree. I think they're very different. Um, I think that the movie is um, androids; they're just like people, and like that's like the whoa factor. But with the with the novel, it's so much deeper than that. It's it's yeah, maybe androids are people; they're not people. How do we define what it is to be a person? And in this book, we're, it seems like the way we're currently doing that is by measuring empathy. But at the same time, there are plenty of human beings who also lack empathy. We have psychopaths and sociopaths and um, and um, billionaires and warlords and people who are just doing horrific things to people intentionally um, or through their own negligence that, like, those are human beings these are people, so it really—I think—it tackles the question of what does it mean to be a person in such an interesting way. That the movie does not. The movie's just like, oh, cool, right, weird, right? They're, they are. Isn't it weird if robots were like us too? That's that's all the movie's really right. doing in my in my mind.
2: I feel like I think the movie is pushing a narrative of what is it to be conscious and sentient as opposed to what is it to be human to, to me there was less of a focus on what is it that makes us human and the book focused heavily on you know w- what is what what is it to be human what does is empathy how we learn to be human i mean what is the mercer box if not an empathy machine well, you know and and we we have that today in the form of the internet that i I think the internet is the mercer box frankly but you have this the, i think the text pushes a number of questions. I wrote them down. So the first is what is empathy? Second is what is reality? And the third Mm -hmm. is, does any of it really matter? Yeah. And I I felt like those, that's what again and again, the book. Okay. So let me take a step back. All the animals are dead. Having a real animal is like an unbelievable thing, right? It's like most of the animals have died out. The idea of eating an animal in the dystopian future of do androids dream of electric sheep, is, you know, a war crime, you know, like the, like it's to eat an animal would be considered like so horrible. And you think about it, it's not, and I'm not saying this as a vegetarian, but it's, it's not unsurprising. I I think one day in the future, we will look back on eating animals in the same way that these people do, because there's this kind of, you know, you look at what you've lost and you think about how we didn't even consider, the feelings of other creatures, including other humans. And yet yeah. we consider ourselves human. Meanwhile, there are these slaves that escape from Mars and come back to earth. And it's not only is it normal to kill them, it's expected. Yeah. It's looked down upon to even use them as sex bots. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it. it's this, I think that kind of um, juxtaposition of what is empathy. Like they have these incredible moments of empathy. And then you have these horrible moments of torture, like with the spider.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
2: And, and you're, there's a, there's this kind of, he doesn't, I think he, as opposed to making a specific point, he just toys as in Dick just toys with our own idea of what is empathy, as opposed to saying humans are empathy machines. It's more, what is, what is it? And, and why does it make a special? Does it make a special and do our creations um, carry that? facet in them or not. And if they don't, what does that say about us? Anyways, it's just a lot of it's a lot of heady stuff, man.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the thing I really liked that was also I think really included in here was this whole idea of like uh ev- evolutionary psychology and the reason why which we might experience empathy from an evolutionary perspective being that we are social creatures and we want our entire tribe to survive. So it's important for us to understand the suffering Of another like us, so that we as a species or or as a tribe, as a people, can survive, and that's something the android doesn't have. And they talk about how even on Mars, an android's not going to help another android who is in trouble. But that's also not a uniquely human thing either, because you see that in the wilderness all the time, like on the safari, you know, a a lion's coming after a a bunch of um, antelopes, and they'll like kind of like rally around each other to protect the the, the most vulnerable. Like that's a thing that that that's not only. Humans that are doing that, um, but I, I think it's really kind of cool that we're looking at the difference between being alive and not being alive, and what that means in terms of what you are compelled to do to protect yourself. Mm-hmm. What is the yourself that you're protecting? For humans, we have self-preservation, but we also have this, 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 this need to protect the species but with our androids they don't all of the androids they are only out for themselves and they're only going to ally with each other as long as they need to because what what their version of survival is completely just based on their circuitry
0: right so i have a question that to two points one that jeff and what uh, you brought up so um so we have these androids they don't have empathy right is that because the humans who are creating them don't know how to code that into the androids? Or is it impossible at a sort of existential level? Or um, is it the humans don't want it in the androids? Secondly, the, another theme that has been hit upon, and you just mentioned the word loss, right? This whole world is a, is a fallen world, right? This, uh, do androids dream of electric keep is a post-apocalyptic situation. So we have lost something. So why wouldn't we, as the creators of the androids, they look at these as, as this dangerous thing, right? But we create them to look like us. Why wouldn't we want to make them even more human so that our species might somehow survive even if we physically are no longer able to reproduce because they are made in our image? Right. And well, so I think
1: the answer to both of those questions are potentially answered by the exact same th- the exact same answer, which is that since we are Currently biologically pre-wired to want our species to survive. If I code an Android to have a similar desire for their species, the Android species, to survive, then I'm essentially cre- I'm, I'm essentially signing my own death certificate in advance. I'm 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 setting these these things up to want to help each other survive and to potentially take us down. And the answer to the second question that I think is tied into that is that if we want to have this idea of leaving them behind as our legacy, but that involves them taking us over and and enslaving us and killing us, we would be biologically predisposed to not wanting that to happen. So I can easily see why the people designing these Androids would not want them to have either of those two things. Yet the
0: Rosen Corporation seems to want to create a more perfect Android, right? And one that can pass the voight tests, tests, right? So what does that mean? I don't know. I'm just putting that out there. <laughs>
1: yeah, you might be right. Because, I mean, this is my conjecture. And this is yeah. what I'm projecting onto yeah.
0: the story. Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, and I also feel like
2: there's not as much... We don't get from... The... So the, the book is 100% from the perspective of one character... And we don't, well, two characters, but it's it's limited in its scope. You don't ever see anything from the perspective of an android or even from someone from the Rosen Corporation or whatever. We don't really know what the deal is. As far as we're concerned, there might be some ultimate plan here that we're not aware of. And it, it, maybe they are planning on replacing humans. Or maybe, you know, they're trying to encourage people to leave Earth as much as possible, for instance, right? That's yeah. like a government. Maybe there's something else going on there. You know, in, in this world, the Soviet Union is still around. And... You know, As far as we know, there are androids. There's an entire android police station, you know, which is by far my favorite part of the book, by the way, is the android police station.
0: Because really? it's just like, what?
2: <laughs> what is happening? And they don't know they're androids. It's so and great. and, the, so and great. the
0: biggest jerk cop is actually a human. Yeah. But he's in the, working in yeah. the android police station.
2: Yeah. Well, I love that, that he actually turns out to be a human. <laughs> <That> dude, <laughs> right. And he's the whole time just thinking about like, well, no, I have to be human. But oh, he is human. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that's the... So I feel like we there's a lot of unanswered questions, and I think that's yeah. purposeful. Did either of you mm-hmm. read the short story that preceded this, the the black box? No. no, no. So, so, um, so Dick wrote a short story before – Do Android Dream came out in 68 or whatever. And um, by the way, I read this on my Kindle, but the original version I read in high school was um, the 90s yellow paperback that um, was very common. Like you saw it everywhere at the time. But uh, the original short story is all about the Mercer box. And it's about how like essentially the US government was afraid that the Mercer box would unite people around the world in a way that was bad. And it's about like, mm. a, basically a spy being sent to take out the Mercer box so that it doesn't proliferate. Um, mm. uh, and I, I I, think with that context, it's interesting because it kind of, to me, reading this as someone who had read the short story prior, uh, it, I, I just kind of assumed there was shadowy f- forces, but it never really comes out in the book. So that yeah. was kind of my biases coming in was thinking, well, maybe there's things we don't really know, you know.
1: And it's interesting that the that that whole section of the book is kept out of the movie. Everything involving Mercer and mercerism has it's just like not present in the film. It's not there at but, all. Yeah, it's not yeah. there at all. Yeah. But it's like some of the most fascinating stuff and I think it's really cool how um with uh once we find out that mercerism is absolutely um it's it's a fraud. It is it's a hoax. Like it's not a real thing, but even after we realize that people are still following it it and doesn't people matter are still very it doesn't matter because it doesn't yeah. matter and, <laughs> and I kind of love that in a way I think it, it 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 can be I think it can be seen as a very cynical criticism of religion and I can also see it um see it from the through the lens of looking at it as well if it's if it's providing people value then that makes it real that that gives it a, a purpose right. and a reason to exist
2: and I, th- I think uh so dick dick at the time of writing, was just entering his sort of a Kabbalist period. Like he got before he got really into uh, (laughs) certain kinds of drugs, he became very interested in um, Kabbalah, which is like a Jewish mysticism that favors ecstatic sort of empathy and oneness with the universe. And
1: I I, I believe believe Madonna is a, is a major practitioner of uh, this. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, Listen, <laughs>
2: she did so much damage to
1: the Ka- sure, Kabbalah. Sure. is so
2: cool. It's so yeah. weird. It's so out yeah. there. And then you get this. Not okay. Whatever. The the point is, um, <laughs> I I actually saw a lot of connections there. If you read early Kabbalists talking about the way that they feel towards others, um, especially around suffering when they're in these kind of ecstatic meditative points it's very similar to the experience described by mercerism which is so it's to me I, you know at first reading it i thought oh this is kind of a jesus analog but it's not it's it's not really a savior complex it's um something else entirely and i i i think again it's that's about a, a sort of a true empathy versus the performative empathy that i think we see today and like, I think, I think he was pushing back against this sort of fake empathy that um, humans occasionally espouse. And if anything, I, I think mercerism is a sort of a beautiful thing that Dick was able to include. I, I, I used to be of, of the mind that I would have hated it, you know, Oh, it's a religious thing. And I, I don't, you know, it's, a, it's the shackles yeah. of the, you know, I just didn't see it as a useful tool, but now I'm I'm much more appreciative of it. And, and that's mm-hmm. why I was really appreciative of reading this again. Cause high school, Yohai was, way more of an asshole atheist than 40-year-old right. Muhammad, yeah. so.
0: and um, And, again, yeah, it's interesting you mention that because the two of the, on the surface, the most hapless characters in the book, which is J.R. Isidore and Iran, uh, Rick Deckard's wife, are, in fact, the biggest believers in mercerism, And they ultimately yes. do have the most compassion and empathy out of any of the characters in the book, right? Iran, we think she's just depressed. Uh, you know, the way she's depicted at the beginning, you think she's just this depressive, mopey housewife who doesn't do anything, but she is actually the one... I think Dan pointed out, but I think it's pretty obvious by the time we read it. At the, end of the book, she's the one who actually is caring and taking me sure that Rick Decker doesn't spiral down into the bottom of PTSD or whatever. Right. Uh, yeah. And, and, and Jared Isidore is the most human, even though he's written off as being basically less than because he's, you know, potentially developmentally disabled and he can't, you know, and, you know, obviously all the humans who are left on earth are, you know, their genes are mutated because of radiation or whatever and can't really have children. So, um, but they are, More human than anybody else. More human than the androids who already have built-in flaws. More human than Deckard or... uh, What's the name of the other Blade Runner who is just awful, you know? (laughs) Um,
2: Uh, Yeah. yeah. What What was his name?
0: Yeah. yeah. I don't remember. Yeah. Um, And then the other android I really like who actually has the most self-knowledge, is the the opera singer. I forget what her name is. but (laughs) Yeah.
1: She's great. Yeah.
0: Uh, But yeah,
1: I think listening to you just now makes me think that maybe... The thing that I really loved the most about this book is I think that with every question he poses, I think the answer is yes and no. With mm. uh, are androids people? Yes and no. Um, are what does right. like um uh, is is this reality? Yes and no. Is Mercerism real? Yes and no. Is this guy is this right. guy a fraud? Yes and no. Like he he this is a dude who wants to be worshipped and seen as this like this powerful entity. So in that sense it's super um, it's super narcissistic and coming from from a place of manipulation and a place of deceit. but also does this guy want to and do incredible good for the people that he interacts with? Also yes. And no, because because also it's 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 harmful that you're not real, but you actually are doing real work for these people. I I love that he gives us no easy answers to anything. He asks asks us all of these co- very complicated questions and lets the answers be complicated as well.
2: Yeah, welcome to Philip K. Dick. That's mm-hmm. that's, that's kind of his, <laughs> really that's his that's his shtick is just right. presenting you with the fractured reality of his mind and letting right. you sit with it in like almost oh, Dostoevsky
0: way. He just... No. Um, now, you've read most of Dick's body, most or if not all of it, yes. and I understand that this is probably a little bit more accessible, I mean, than some of his other books. It but depends. It, it depends. Yeah. Some
2: are really hard to read, some are not. I mean, mm-hmm. my yeah. favorite of his is Ubik, um, which is I keep pretty, hearing that one's phenomenal. Pretty, it's yeah. pretty... It's, I mean, I think you specifically will like it, but I also think it's hard for people who are maybe out of the um, sci-fi stream, if that makes sense, are less if you're like, you know, if you're willing to read 20 pages of something you don't understand so that you can get to quote the good stuff, then it's something that's magnificent, you know? Um, but Martian time slip is pretty hard for parts of it. Cause it's literally from the perspective of someone who is mentally ill and you don't really know what's going on, but then you have other stuff that is man in the high castle is completely understandable, except at the end, it sort of messes with your concept of reality. You know, mm-hmm. it, it 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 it's written completely in a traditional way that makes sense, and then at the end you think, wait, is anything real? You know, he's, he's all about that. Is anything real, kind of thing, and mm-hmm. you know, he also is a man of his time, and you see that in the way he writes. A uh, person has un- ugly mongoloid features. He wrote that at one right, point right. in the in the book. Yeah. and that, it's and we something- know what
1: every female character's breasts look like.
2: Oh, there is definitely yeah. that. There is definitely No, He is someone who
1: has written strong female characters, but he also is absolutely, you total- know. And she- this is another Chauvin's great example stuff. of yes. And- this is another great example of yes and no because although he's constantly describing women's breasts, I also thinks I also think that he approaches the female characters in a really interesting way in this like i look at the character of the disposable wife that like that decker doesn't really hardly think about that right. he's happy to throw aside for like his right. new android love but also she's this really interesting complex character who's this person who's really trying to like understand her emotional life and have some sense of meaning and like we have a pretty deep and nuanced character here who's clearly struggling with depression um And we have a guy who's treating her in a very traditional 1968 way, which I don't know if Philip K. Dick was being intentional about that or not, but whether he was being intentional about it or not kind of doesn't matter because he's still imbuing these characters with the capacity of us... having empathy with them by giving us enough information about them, which is a really cool conversation starter for 1968. Like we did not get to have kind of these like more complex stuff with like gender and, um, and sexuality. We're talking about the consent of androids. Like there's that whole scene where, where Rachel realizes she can't not have said no to him to have sex. And then afterwards tells him that made me really uncomfortable. So uh, he's exploring really fascinating stuff that is like super sophisticated for 1968.
2: Yeah. I mean, he was a man of his time, but I also think in many ways he was brilliant. And um, you know, it's, it's, it sort of reminds me of how there are points in the novel where, I couldn't have told you when it was written. There was, you know, it's it's there are some parts that are obvious like he can he can imagine vid phones, but he can't imagine <laughs> he can't imagine like, you know, that they wouldn't have phone books, you know. They yeah, use right, phone right. books. You know, right, so right. that's very much of his time, but on the flip side, he when he talks about how they are essentially organically human, these creatures, they are organically human, but without using any science mumbo jumbo, like what Isaac Asimov would have done, he helps you understand on a, a kind of innate level why the androids are the way that they are through the scene with the spider. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, through through Isidore, really. Isidore is our surrogate there. And it to, it's so obvious to us that torturing a spider is is wrong, although people squash spiders all the time, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. But then Isidore, knowing how rare a living spider would be is and also having empathy is just like terrified or you know he's yeah. horrified and he realizes oh i'm in with the wrong crowd
0: no i mean you were saying jeff that that's a brilliant set piece because that's happening at the same time as the reveal that Mercerism is a fraud right so you have this thing and it's happening in real time and like we're all we're trying to process all of that information at the same time you know?
1: And it's also happening after we realize that the Rachel model and the Prim model Pris. are the same model, Pris and the Pris model are the same model of Android. So we discover that they're essentially the same creature to their core. And she's the one who's torturing the spider. But we discover that while we're also having the Uh, rachel and decker love story so you know that like they're falling in love with each other quote unquote during this period of time but you're also seeing the the um the incredible cruelty that her other self is capable of doing which means she's probably capable of doing it so i feel like it was doing such a great job of building up the suspense (laughs) there she pushes right. that well, goat off the building.
0: Like, yeah, she throws the goat <laughs> off the building. And that's just like his little joke, too. She got his goat, right? <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, was- but, yeah.
2: But so that's so one thing I would add is she was very, I think I was very, I found her very sympathetic. The um, the fact that uh, she has sex with men in order to keep herself alive. You know, they won't, bla- you know, these they bounty hunters will not kill her if they've slept with her she's figured that out and that to me seemed very poignant like this idea of she knew she had to get him to sleep with her because it, it might make it so he couldn't kill her and yeah. he was right except he was able to kill her <laughs> double later and then the second thing i wanted to say was that yeah we're we're also discovering while discovering that mercerism is fake he like moments later deckard sees mercer in his mind in the hallway yeah. Right in the stairwell, he sees this apparition, which maybe it's that he hasn't slept in days. You know, maybe he took mood enhancers. Who knows? But he, he has this sort of moment where, um, it, maybe mercerism isn't fake. But then it, you know, it's, it's so interesting.
1: Yeah. So we should probably get this over to a gaming conversation here. Um, I will say, I, cyberpunk as a genre is not something I have had a whole lot of interest in, but also I haven't really read proper cyberpunk. So this is our intro to it and our next episode is going to be Neuromancer. So I'm going to I'm going to be really really set after after this coupling, but it makes me think about how at the time of recording um uh Kevin Crawford's Cities Without Numbers is uh currently being kickstarted, which is like the cyberpunk OSR game. But I guess um if you were to do if you were if you were to want to pl- uh, tell a story like this, what kind of a system would you want to use?
2: I would use the veil. I mean, that's what I've used in the past, which is a PBTA cyberpunk system. Um, I really like the, so I'm not a huge PBTA fan, but, um, the, powered by the apocalypse, but, uh, it makes specific use of the kind of emotional ammunition that I think is n- natural to cyberpunk settings. And, um, yeah, it's a simple. It's a simple enough game. It's got cool playbooks. Like I think that's my one experience I've had with sort of sort of cyberpunk roleplay. I also have um, Anna X sixty six, which is a Into the Odd variant that is uh, cyberpunk esque, and um, I haven't played it, but it's based on Into the Odd, so I know what it would be like. But the setting itself and cool. the tools and all that are pretty specific. So those are the two that I um, would off off the cuff recommend. I haven't actually played like any of the big cyberpunk systems before.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. and I also want to yeah. ask you a meta question. So, th- this 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 story is all about artificial intelligence and conversations around AI are becoming really um 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 what's the word I'm looking for um
0: prevalent common, sure. uh, yes
1: yes yeah. yes all of those you know we've got uh, uh, Chat GPT we've got Wizards of the Coast developing their AI dungeon master. I'm curious, just in general, what are your thoughts on using artificial intelligence tools to either help us generate our adventures or to act or to maybe even like have an, an AI character, or like one character who's played by an AI player down the road? What are your thoughts on this?
2: So I had uh, a lot of experience using ChatGPT in recent months because I was interested in it and wanted to see what it could do, but also I found it to be sometimes useful in organizing information. So for example, um, I built a setting generator for the upcoming second edition of second edition of Karen. And I wanted to quickly separate, uh, I had two D 100 tables and I wanted to separate out the nouns and adjectives and then nouns that were not also adjectives because that happens. And I just pasted the table in there and it just did it for me. Like, instantaneously. Wow. So, it was crazy. And another thing I did with it is I took... So, Karen is word-for-word um, word accessible uh, through an SRD on my on my website. And um, I took the text in raw markdown and I put it into chat GPT. And then I told it to make a character. And it did. Just the wow. raw text. I literally just copy and pasted my game. And it just created a character. It was Insane, okay. It's insane, <laughs> yeah. And um, I also used it to toy around with different ways of presenting the same information by telling it to make certain changes in certain places, but on a like broad level. So, so on a programmatic function, I think it is uh, going to become a useful tool that you'll see varying versions of. Uh, when it so comes that's to your yes,
1: I want to hear the no. Well, it's yeah. What well, the things it's, you're this concerned no, about,
2: is, right? so well i have lots of things i mean so like i told it i was playing around with it not that long ago i asked it to tell me a jewish folktale because you know that's a thing that i like and (laughs) uh, let me tell you um ai is fed only what we feed it and what we feed it is mostly you know eurocentric (laughs) yeah not not even that it was just like I remember once when I when Midjourney first came out I played around with it and I typed in like a Jewish man. Oh my god, <laughs> the stuff you got from it. And you know, it's also specifically with Mid-Journey and many of these art generators, putting aside the stealing other people's art thing, they also generate essentially eurocentric art. So if you say draw a woman, it will show you a white woman or at least it did for a long time because it has these implicit biases. So putting all that stuff aside with ChatGPT specifically, I'll tell you what I think is problematic. Um, I read an article just today about someone using chat GPT to create dialogue for NPCs in video games. And it was a proof of concept. And essentially it was a conversation that was generated by, NPC- by chat GPT where the um, character played by the player was threatening to murder a um, NPC's family. And the NPC essentially was begging for his life using the power of ChatGPT while having this conversation. And it got really disturbing, like really disturbing, too real, like way too real. And um, I feel like there will be more of that, particularly amongst video games. But within the RPG space, my fear is that people will rely on it and it will give them incorrect uh, and highly biased information or uh, meta, you know, like, t- uh, t- text to use. So it, it will only help reproduce the biases we already have. Like if you're worried yeah. about decolonizing RPGs, this is not going to help. If you're worried about, you know, making it about something that is, um, not, you know, if I asked it once to, I said, condescendingly tell me why Pathfinder is better than, uh, you know, old school essentials or something. And, oh my God, did it do a good job of that? Just like, you know, you it spoke to me in an extremely condescending manner about why Pathfinder is such a better game. And I just, it, it just does that stuff without thinking. There's no guardrails there for that stuff. Right. Yeah. So I'm just afraid of people coming to use it and thinking that it's the same as fact or the same mm-hmm. as truth. Yeah. When it's not, it's not, right. you know.
0: And I guess another hallmark we always talk about is, the you know, the hallmark of the mature mind is to be able to hold two, uh, Opposing ideas together, and then maybe come some coming come to some sort of synthesis or something like that. And it seems to me, from what I've seen so far with these language models, that that's not capable of doing that. You know, <laughs> you know that um, it's not it's not capable of any real synthesis, right? These these, these uh these these. Well, it's models.
2: it's not really weighing. It it's like it's like you programmed an android to be the perfect imitation of humanity, but it's only able to reproduce what it's learned, not right. Coming up with it on its own. I, I remember, um, uh, Ted Chang. If you're familiar, so sure. It's, it's um, probably my own.
0: arrival. I made mean, the book story well, that became yeah, Arrival. Story of Life, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
2: he's he's probably my favorite current like re- like living author in terms of his new work. In terms of like new work, like I'm more excited about his work than anything else. He wrote a, a piece for I think the New Republic uh, last year about AI, and his example of like the f- sort of the the limitations of AI is you couldn't just put an artificial intelligence in a room and feed it all the DNA from humanity and get it to figure out the, um, uh, the genome. Like it would not, you need people, human beings who are thinking about abstract concepts in a way that cannot be generated just through pure processing you need to have whatever it is that makes us human to do that and he, and he basically he was arguing for why ai will never supplant human sentience in terms of um ingenuity and i think wow if ted chang thinks that that's <laughs> who am i to disagree right. so
0: i mean there's definitely advantages in speed and power sure. but sure. um but that's what computing does right it can it can iterate through a ton of different things but it doesn't actually understand Well, we hope not. Well, I don't know. It doesn't have me. It doesn't understand meaning. Just like I said, it's 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 just a it's a model just using words, but it doesn't actually understand like uh, we hope the meaning behind uh, them. Meaning behind them. Um, and as you said, a lot of this is very, at the moment, very Eurocentric, also very Anglocentric, right? Most of the models so far have been primarily in English, right? Not not other languages. Um, I was saying in the the group that, uh, and I know we're sort of ending up here, that almost to me this book. Would be harder to do with AI than this. This book, as a game, to me seems to be like best suited to do it as a LARP almost, where uh, you know you have one or two players you're playing, and you don't tell. You know, not everybody knows, but one or two players are the Blade Runners, and a bunch of people are androids, and then a bunch of people are just innocent bystanders, and of course you, you don't know. You just gotta have to figure out, and people are. It's, them it's the real.
2: Yeah, a uh, real was it, uh, ultimate werewolf or mafia, right. but with androids. Is that what you're right. saying?
0: <laughs> something like that, you know, so you have to figure out. Who, and if you zap a human, oh, well, you're going yeah. to jail, you know, or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or you, you, you cue in the androids. Now the androids uh, know you're hunting them, right? So well, then, I
2: could see it also as like a fiasco playset. Sure. you know, where yeah. you know, so-and-so is an android but doesn't know it, you know, that kind of right. connection. And then
0: the other one I thought heard recommended would be, and I think actually agree, if you re- Positing this more as an investigative game is to use the uh, gumshoe one-on-one rules. Sure, um, sure. As as a as a model for that.
2: It, can I make one more RPG connection about sure. this book? It's a strange one. Okay. So, are you familiar with uh, Winner's Daughter by Gavin Norman? It's for the Dolmenwood setting. It's an old school sure. adventure. Yeah. So, it has two versions, um, and the original version was um, controversial because the opening scene, essentially the. Player characters arrive at a um, a suicide, or I should say, a it's a homicide. It's four druid type guys are about to stab a willing participant in a ritual where they murder her for some god, and the PCs are meant to engage, not engage, assist, whatever you want. And I've run this for five or six different like people who are new to RPGs. And it is so interesting to see how people react to this scene because first they feel like they should go and save her, but then they realize she wants to be killed. And then they have to decide, do we say, screw you, we're going to save you anyways. Do we kill the guys and, um, I don't know, run off. Like, do we help? And I've gotten so many different reactions in running it. And it's gone from the current version. Um, it was seen as, you know, problematic probably because it was a woman killing herself, but, um, uh, it just reminded me of that kind. You can use empathy in games. You know, yeah. that's what, that's what games are, right? There is, at least that's what stories are. They're empathy machines. And I feel like one thing I would take from this is to try to in- invest in my home table, more uh, morally problematic scenarios where you have to make that. a decision, um, mm-hmm. you know, and that's hard to do. Uh, it, it, you know, there's, there's a supplement that came out last year called, um, Oh, I've already run the name, but it's about how to make uh, moral problems for your players to solve. You know, like, do you help the Robin Hood or do you hunt the Robin Hood down? That kind of stuff.
0: Right. Exactly. That's an amazing last thought on games. Um, We're running out of time. Yochai, do you want to tell us about any projects that you might have coming up that you want people to know about? I hear Karen's second edition, obviously. Uh, Anything else going on?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Actually, before that comes out, um, I've been saying this for a while, but it's actually true now. Uh, I wrote a <laughs> setting for Cairn uh, based on the Jewish mythology and folk tales that I am very, inv- inv- uh, you know, are a big part of my life. Uh, it takes place in the Pale of Settlement, which is uh, basically where all the Jews were forced to go to when Russia kicked them out. And um, it is going to be really awesome. Um, it's fully written. It's fully illustrated. It's just in layout now. And I am very excited about it. I'm not doing a Kickstarter. I'm just going to start selling it. Um, It's going to be really different than I think anything that's out there. I don't know if that's good, but I'm really, really proud of it. And um, it is, yeah, I'm really excited. And then after that comes out, I will be doing a box set kickstarter for karen second edition um that's what i'll be investing all the rest of my creative energies into is writing that to try to make it um, a more accessible game that also you know the rules are going to stay the same but it'll have some new procedures for folks who care about that sort of thing you can drop them if you don't want them and it'll also have a sort of um default setting that helps drive uh the shared narrative so Mm -hmm. yeah those are the two things that i'm into and of course if you want to hear more of my thoughts on role-playing games, I co-host a podcast with Brad Kerr, who is a very successful uh, RPG designer. Uh, It's called Between Two Cairns, and it is on the internet wherever podcasts are found, which, of course, is everywhere. So,
1: uh, yeah, have
0: a listen. (laughs) Okay. Sounds great. And this is all this year, 2023? yes, Yes, yes. Okay, perfect. Go ahead, Jeff.
1: And Brad will be joining us on a future episode as well.
2: Yes, he got. Oh, I okay. He got. So, what he got, I'm very. I'm so excited about that because he's he's never. First off, he's never read any Vance, which is crazy. And <laughs> should I not say that? he hasn't read any of the author? He hasn't read any of the author, I mean, which you, is crazy. You can say who it is. Okay, okay, it's it's a Jack Vance. Um, well, it's yeah, it it's it's some of my. I've even read the um official extra stories that were written by other authors after because I love this particular character. So I. Oh, I'm just so excited. I actually was trying to tell him like you should you should be really excited about this. It's so good. You're gonna love it so much. And he's like, Why well, I don't he's like you. He did. I'll read I'll read Dick someday. This is this is this is what I have to say. This is the day. No, Jeff, this is what I have to say to you. Y- y- you gotta read more Philip K. Dick. What are you doing? You host a <laughs> podcast about books. He, uh, science fiction and fantasy books. He go go read. No, go read um galactic pot healer or something just something short it's so good his stuff is so out there
0: yeah. there you go all right so uh that sounds like a the final word there um all right uh you can find us on uh internet as well uh if you want to drop us a note you can uh, write to us at appendix and book at gmail.com uh if twitter hasn't burned down by the time this podcast releases we're still on there at at appendix underscore n and. and jeff how about our patreon
1: Yes, our patrons vote on and choose which episodes we are covering, for, uh, which books we are covering. For episode 141, we'll be doing Edgar Rice Burroughs' A Princess of Mars. For 142, we're going to do Robert uh Thieves' World. For 143, we're doing Susanna Clark's Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell. So we have some really cool stuff coming up. And um, also our patrons can join us for our patron book club recordings beforehand. Today, we had a nice full house. We were joined by Rick Byrne, Robert Coleman, Damo Saklas, Brandon Cruz, Hyperlexic, Dan Alexander, and Adam Styers. Thank you guys for joining us. That was a lot of fun. I'd also like to reach into our hat and shout out a few of our other patrons. Thank you to Robbie Fioto, Andrew Sternick, Travis Stamper, Joseph Hoopman, Adam Monnier, David Moreau. Ivan Paul. We really appreciate your support. And Hoy, when this episode drops, what is going to be the titles that our patrons can vote on at that point?
0: All right. The theme uh, for the selections is Yesterday's Apocalypse. Uh, The first book will be Philip Jose Farmer's Dark is the Sun. Second book is Sterling E. Lanier's The Unforsaken Hero. Third book will be Walter M. Miller's A Canticle for Leibowitz. And the fourth book will be George R. Stewart's Earth Abides. So, Yesterday's Apocalypse.
1: Awesome. So, that is going to be a really cool poll. I'm I'm excited to read any of those.
0: Indeed. Indeed. All right. Uh, anything else? No, I think that's it, everybody. Uh, that's Yohan, it. It's an honor and a pleasure. Thank you, man. Yeah, so, thanks uh, for being on. All right. This has been a blast. Uh, all right, everybody. See you in the stacks. Read on.
2: The library is closed.